Reading from the New American Standard Bible. This is now, beloved, the second letter I'm writing to you, and that's plural, y'all, all y'all really, writing to all y'all, in which I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the words spoken beforehand by the Old Testament holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior spoken by your New Testament apostles. Know this first of all, after you get the word and live the word, uh, you learn it and lean on it, right, as we said last week. Know this first of all, that in the last days, mockers, skeptics, they have PhDs, they have high uh, intelligence quotients, they have great vocabularies and have a lot of media exposure, uh, many of them, that mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts, And lust, we hear that in English, we think of sexual lust, that's one kind of lust, but the Greek term epithumia just means a strong desire for something. And you can have a lust for life, or a lust, an epithumia for the faith, or a lust for illicit sex, or more likely for money and popularity and prosperity and that kind of thing. So they're all over the place, but they've got motives for their mocking saying, where is the promise of his coming? Whose coming are we talking about? Second coming of Jesus. And it has been 2,000 years since he left, right? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation, only they don't really believe in creation, however it started. Everything goes along and there is no divine intervention anywhere. Uh, We're going to focus on verses 3 and 4 under the title, they laughed him, who were talking about him, Christ, to scorn. We'll show you the passage in a minute that says that in the King James Bible. They laughed Jesus to scorn. So they're going to laugh at uh, Ethan. They're going to laugh at Jack. If you guys take your face seriously at middle school or high school, uh, Caitlin, as you take your uh, training and start your own business and stuff, I mean, people will either laugh at you uh, right to your face or behind your back if you take this faith, Christian faith very seriously. So they're going to laugh at us because they laughed at him. So don't be surprised or paralyzed. Just as I was praying there for clear head and pure heart, uh, I feel like God gave me a remembrance of an occasion where I got laughed at, and I've been laughed at a lot. The good thing about being a pastor, once you become a professional Christian in the eyes of uh, non-church men especially, they kind of expect you to actually believe this stuff, so they're not going to laugh at you about that. But they don't necessarily take you real seriously like a real person. But I remember distinctly a 10th grade teacher I had in high school uh, who went to the First Baptist Church Needland, as I did. I didn't normally get the opportunity to stay after Sunday school to go to preaching, but that particular week I did. And throughout that message, the pastor emphasized like one theme. And I can't remember what the theme was, but it was very well uh, worded. Uh, Scott, and it was something like, with God all things are possible, something like that. He just repeated that throughout the message. And anyway, I'm in this classroom, and I realized my teacher, it's a world history class, was a member of that church, and I had seen her that morning at church, or that Sunday morning at church. So I knew her. she heard that statement, and I'm going to pretend like it's with God all things are possible. But whatever the statement was, it was relevant to whatever she was talking about in the classroom that day. So she's talking about this thing about some something in history, and then she kind of acted like, and so, you know, who knows how it's going to work out. Or it's impossible for good stuff to happen or something like that. And so she's kind of said, any comments? And I said, 
letting her know that, just reminding her what the preacher told us Sunday, it just has an inside thing, but because I think it was important to say, I said, yeah, I've got a comment, with God all things are possible, and she started laughing. And she started laughing, and I was not the sophisticated thinker and observer of people that I am now, but I could tell in my immature state, she was laughing as if she thought that was funny because she didn't want the cool kids to think she actually took it seriously. She wasn't really laughing at me, but I just thought, as I just thought, as, why would you laugh at that? I mean, uh, in that way, it wasn't like, hey, that's pretty cute, Brad. We both heard that Sunday, and it is true, that kind of thing. I mean, it was just like, you could just tell. As a, she's, she's ashamed of a pretty generic identification with the faith. So skeptics have been laughing uh, at Jesus and at biblical truth for a long time, and they're going to laugh at us. So don't be surprised or paralyzed. And some people in middle school have to decide, is this important enough to me that I'm willing to be laughed at, if necessary, with the cool crowd in order to believe and do the right thing? There are right ways to live the faith, and there are wrong ways. And if you're going to be a holier-than-now and the first time you're in a locker room, somebody says something like, uh, you know, theological term and non-theological context, and you storm out and quit the baseball team because one of your teammates cussed, I don't think that's a great testimony. Uh, I think you've got to kind of hang in there and suffer the wounds and arrows of things like that. But when somebody's laughing at the faith or laughing at you, uh, it, it can be difficult. And I trust, trust me, a lot of kids who grew up in Christian churches at the middle school level are not willing, uh, to stand up for the faith lest they be excluded from the in-group, the cool group. Uh, the guys on the basketball team or the baseball team aren't willing to really publicly identify with this. And this is the first time. That, so they're deciding if they're regenerate to become, you know, practiced hypocrites. I like one way uh, on the football team and one way at church where we run my parents. And yet, you know, you see this with adults too. You see people that uh, uh, are deacons at the First Baptist Church that uh, aren't willing to take some hits for the gospel, aren't willing to be laughed at, and uh, that's not normative Christianity. We're not supposed to go out of our way to be goofy or obnoxious, but if we actually take uh, Christ and the gospel seriously, some people think that's not only absurd, it's just ridiculous, and they laughed him to scorn and this passage is basically saying, watch out, they're going to laugh at you too. So don't be surprised by that, and don't let that paralyze you. It's just not worth punting your testimony to try to impress uh, people whose praise is very, very uh, tenuous and fragile, and you can't please the crowd forever, and the crowd is very cruel once you stop pleasing them, right? So, serious uh, topic, but important and practical message, I think. Let's look at... Uh, this passage, but let's pray for teachability and for troops, peace officers, and firefighters. And uh, Jack, would you lead us in prayer, please? Amen. Thank you, Jack. Uh, I'm going to call this uh, potential abstract thought warmer-uppers because you never know. I think Jack's last week went over pretty well, but here's some uh, attempts to warm up your capacity for abstract thought. Mummies, you know, like Egyptian mummies, King Tut kind of thing. Never take vacations because they don't want to relax and unwind. They don't want to unwind, Michelle. Ron, what is gray, has four legs and a trunk? James, an elephant? No, a mouse on a long road trip. 
You see the mouse has a trunk with stuff and so on. Potential abstract thought warm-uppers. First woman, my son came to visit me from New York City. Second woman, did you meet him at the airport? First woman, no, I've known him all his life. Let's move on rapidly. The message of Second Peter overall is a Christ-centered hope, actively, eagerly anticipating being with Jesus, should motivate believers, put your name in the blank, Blanche Britton or Lloyd Davis or Homer Cox or Sidney Powers, believers now to embrace a lifestyle of true holiness, even if it involves being laughed at by the cool kids, and to avoid the heresies doctrinally and morally of false teachers. Think of the book as an arch with kind of the ultimate theme at the end, at the top of the arch, grow in grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, and then we've got the first floor, chapter 1, holiness. Second floor, chapter 2, heresy. Watch out for heresy. Chapter heresy. And chapter 3, hope. Okay, Trey, so let's have an acronym for hope. Hope isn't hoping something might happen like you know, uh, hoping that Baker Mayfield would be drafted by an actually legitimate football team. You realize the Cleveland Browns will ruin any quarterback. Ask Brandon Whedon. Uh, if anybody can break uh, that pattern, it might be Baker. But, man, it's a bad place to be. I'd, just for me, I'd really be a second stringer for a while on the Pittsburgh Steelers, you know, and maybe learn your craft. So he's in, a, he's in an interesting spot. But if anybody can break that that hex, which has been there for a long time. But anyway, uh, so Baker is hoping things are going to work out. I don't, I'm don't. i not sure he's got enough around him to make it work. He may you know, uh, not make it. We'll see. I'm pulling for him. But hope is not hoping something might happen that we'd like to see happen. Biblical hope is looking forward to something we've been promised will happen. And ultimately, our hope is a heavenly hope because Jesus, among other places, says, this is the will of my Father. This is just not going to happen. That everyone who sees and believes the Son will have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up in the last day. Is that a great verse, Julie? I mean, is that an incredible verse? Jesus says that. So let them laugh, because they laughed at him too. So as an attempt to come up with an acronym to kind of convey that, uh, uh, Murray, let's say, think of hope as holding a positive and optimistic perspective now on earth, when all kinds of terrible stuff's happened around us based on an eager expectation of our forever future with Jesus. So that's what hope is. And that's the third chapter. And the third chapter basically says two things. Don't be shocked by man's present and future mockery of our faith and our Savior. Number two, don't be uncertain of the Lord's ultimate eternal victory, including a literal, supernatural, undeniable second advent. That's the two things that chapter three says. But that first part of chapter three, don't be shocked by man's present and future mockery, Breaks down into three pieces. Last week we saw the lock box of scripture. Don't be lax. Don't be lazy. Learn and lean uh, on the scripture, the word of God. Today we're looking at the loud laughter of skeptics. And Lord willing, next week we'll look at the leaks in the logic of the skeptics. But today in verses 3 and 4, let me reread those. We're uh, thinking about the fact that they laughed at Jesus. They're going to laugh at us if we live out our faith consistently in the world and refuse to defect or redefine it to be cool, play with the cool kids. Notice first of all that in the last days, 
Mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own strong desires for whatever it is, but it's a lot of times it's approbation, money, fame, prosperity, and maybe all kinds of other bizarre stuff. Where is the promise of his coming? We, we know the Bible says he's coming back, and I don't see him. So I guess he's not coming. For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the very beginning. Uh, we see this reference to Jesus being laughed at in Luke 8. 52 and 53, and the King James actually translates this. They laughed him to scorn. Uh, New American Standard says this about that passage in Luke, Jesus being laughed at. Now, they were all weeping and lamenting for her, Jairus's 12-year-old daughter, ruler of the synagogue's 12-year-old daughter who had died. A lot of the people weeping in the morning are being paid to mourn. They actually had paid mourners. You know, people will walk your dog now and stuff. In the first century culture, you could pay people to come uh, at your uh, 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 at your home during the week or month in which you'd sit and grieve under Jewish custom. So they're all weeping and lamenting, some of them very much so because they're being paid, and that's their job, uh, because of this young girl's death. But Jesus said, stop weeping, for she has not died. She's not permanently dead here, but she's asleep, as it were. And they began laughing at him, knowing she was dead. They're thinking he either doesn't understand the situation or he does and actually thinks he can fix it. And in fact, he knew about the situation and he could fix it and he immediately does. But before he does, they began laughing at him. King James says they laughed him to scorn. And for some reason, as a little kid, the first time I heard that in Sunday school or whatever, I mean, that really, Jan, resonated with me. They were People are laughing at Jesus, laughing Jesus to scorn? I mean, good night. He's the creator of the universe. He's going to be the consummator. He could stop history with a snap of fingers. The kind of stuff he's willing to put up with, right? So, you know, the arrogant skeptics are in this train. In Second Peter, uh, he talks about them today. Uh, they still exist. And the thing that holds them together, regardless of color, country, or culture, these skeptics, is categorical rejection of salvation in Jesus. That's what... Uh, ties these folks together, whether it's an ancient Greek skeptic or whether it's Richard Dawkins today, doesn't matter. But our two verses break down into two parts. We're going to look at the arrogant question of these skeptics and then the erroneous assumption that they have. Look at the first part of this, verse 3, first part of verse 4. Know this, first of all, as you think about facing heresy in light of your hope that they don't believe in and they're going to make fun of. Uh, know this first of all, that in the last days, and in a sense, the entire church age is the last days because we're on a precipice waiting for an imminent rapture. But 2,000 years into the church age, Michelle, we're definitely closer than any other generation has been. And uh, I used to say, with the North Koreans having nukes, how could it be much longer? But it looks like, and I don't trust the North Koreans. I don't trust Kim Jong-un uh, any more I can throw him. And he weighs about 400 pounds. So there's no way I could throw him very far. So I totally don't trust the guy, but uh, I didn't think he was a good enough actor to go down to South Korea and look like he was having such a good time shaking the South Korean leaders, uh, duly elected. So who knows, man? I mean, I've been praying for Paul McCartney's salvation for 40 years. I haven't really prayed very much for Kim Jong-un's salvation, but I guess if God could save Saul, he might be able to save him. I'm not saying he's saved, but... Uh, it looks like it's hard to for me to believe he could fake that that well, but he is so evil. Uh, it, maybe it's possible. You know, Satan appears as an angel of light. So I, I'm not totally naive, but I used to say 
it can't be much farther away from the second advent, Lord, because the North Koreans have nukes now. But even if they dismantle them, and I hope they will, the Pakistanis have nukes, and they don't have a lot of uh, protocols to protect that under certain situations that uh, ordinance from being stolen from really, really bad guys. And who knows? I mean, the North Koreans need cash so badly, maybe they've already sold all their good stuff to ISIS or something. I'm not saying that. I don't believe in all the conspiracy theories. I also, uh, I'm not paranoid, but I do have real enemies. I, I know that. But uh, uh, I don't know, man. It, it's crazy. But the closer, the further we get into the church age, the closer we are to the second coming, for sure, in the end times. But mockers are going to come saying, where is his Coming ever since the fathers fell asleep, everything just goes the same. There's no uh, divine intervention in history. Uh, talking about the church age here, you guys know all this good stuff, but uh, this is uh, an outline of future prophecy, as I understand it, and, and not all believers hold to this exact breakdown. We all believe in a literal second advent, Daniel, the same Jesus who came as a lamb will come literally to end history on God's terms. All evangelicals understand that. Uh, we disagree on some of the details. But why do I have chapter 1, chapter 2 and 3, chapter 4 and 5? What's that? This is, Nancy, this is the book of Revelation just being read uh, normally and in order without having to move stuff around all over the place, whatever that was. That was cellophane that covered up a toothpick I used yesterday. I'll, I'll pick it up later. I don't want Shauna to have to pick it up when she claims the church. I'll pick it up now. And somebody dropped a... Donut, that's okay. I do a lot of things like that. Uh, usually nobody's watching. Uh, anyway, yeah, chapter one is book of Revelation. John, Patmos, where's Patmos, Homer? You ever been there? Roman prison island off the coast of Ephesus, and John was detained there uh, out of operation, or so the bad guys thought, but God used him to write the last book of the Bible there. Uh, church, uh, church age, the period we live in now, is talked about in chapters two and three. Uh, and Trey, this is a great passage because Jesus himself talks about seven specific little local churches, one really big one, Ephesus, and, and six little ones, and says what he likes about what they're doing and what he doesn't like. So that's the only place where Jesus directly in Scripture tells you about what he likes and doesn't like in churches and in New Testament Christians. In that sense, that's really important. Then we have a door opened in heaven, and we're transported to heaven, John and the readers, uh, I call it the control room, just before the end times break out fully on earth, which is a seven-year tribulation, second advent, 1,000-year kingdom, and eternal state. So we're taken up into heaven. And last week, uh, the, the song that James led us in, one of them had to do with uh, uh, the beautiful colors of heaven and stuff. And I said, hey, most of us think of heaven as a lot of you know vertical lines, white, everything's white, and it's kind of like a library museum. You know, don't don't talk. No talking, you know. That was the number one rule back in my uh, elementary school. No talking, you know. And picture people picture heaven like that, but it's a very colorful place with loud music. Back in the old days, you used to say music, loud music was bad. Not necessarily. Depends on what the content is. But that's the control room. So Murray, I've always thought, yeah, one reason we're given that the rapture passage, as it were, we see the control room. Uh, despite all of the horrors that are about to break out on earth, God is cool, calm, and collected on the throne, no problem. Uh, Jesus is recognized as the one who can uh, repossess planet earth based on that title deed that they, they give him in heaven. So that's Revelation 4 and 5. But here's the timeline of biblical future prophecy if you take the book of Revelation chronologically or linearly. 
I got the rapture event where the church is taken to heaven. No more reference to the church. Seven years, at least 42 months, twice, which is three, which is three years, three and a half years plus three and a half years, which is seven years. See, the rise of the Antichrist, Israel at peace, rule of the Antichrist where he grows his horns and Israel and Christians are persecuted. All that stopped by the second advent of Christ. And that's ultimately what Peter's thinking about. He's thinking about the second advent, which is kind of ends human history on God's terms. He's not saying the rapture won't happen first. In fact, the rapture starts the end times proper. The tribulation talked about in Old Testament quite a bit, time of Jacob's trouble, the glorious advent of the Messiah to end history on God's terms, a thousand-year kingdom on the earth where David will be Jesus' co-regent. God's pretty gracious if you're going to let an adulterer, uh, a drunkard, and uh, a murderer uh, be your co-regent, you know. God can actually change people's lives. It's a good thing. Uh, and then the eternal state. We're going to emphasize that, chapter 21, 22. But anyway, that's what Bible prophecy basically says. And again, not all Christians break it down like that, but for sure we all believe in a literal second advent. And ultimately Peter's saying, hey, a lot of the cool kids are not going to believe that, and they're going to make fun of that and make fun of you if you take it seriously. And it's ironic, but true, that, Carla, the closer we actually get to the beginning of the end times, the more people will scoff at it and scoff and make fun of it. You know, they, they use it as a punchline uh, for their jokes. And, you know, ultimately, this is not a head issue. Sometimes we tend to think of the smart people, the atheists, and the dumb people, the Christians. It's not like that at all. Uh, we got a lot of smart people on our side. Uh, but it's not a head issue. It's a heart issue. It's your mind and the will. Uh, Richard Dawkins, who uh, teaches biology at uh, Cambridge University, defines biology like this. Now, Stan, I call this kind of loaded dice, okay? This is verbatim how he defines biology. And it's, it's so funny. I, I literally have my freshman year, I was a biology major, went to dental school, dropped out, worked at a law firm. Uh, I mean, worked uh, for Symmetric, sold tons of instruments, went to Dow Seminary, worked at a law firm, and became a world-famous preacher in Shreveport, and I stepped down from that very prestigious perch 30 years ago to come here. No, uh, it wasn't exactly like that. But when the movie comes out, that's where we're going to play it. But, uh, yeah, I actually have, and I knew where it was, in my library, in my office, I've got my freshman biology text. A lot of it has changed. <laughs> <laughs> which is weird. Uh, they've added extra kingdoms and stuff, but uh, which you know, and they also took Pluto out of the solar system, which was weird. I mean, how do you do that? But uh, this—they do not have a definition. I wanted to compare the definition from my uh, biology 101 class. They, he never defines biology. He defines everything else about biology. But basically, I think they would have said biology was the study of living things, over and out. That's not the way Richard Dawkins, the world's most famous atheist, who admits he's not an atheist, but a number six agnostic, almost an atheist. Right, Murray? You saw him say that on YouTube. Uh, biology is the study of complicated things. Now, not living things, Michelle. He's saying Macy and Asher, they're just like, they're like rocks. They don't really mean anything. They're just really complicated biological machines. Now, I resent that, you know. Uh, I think Krista and Carson are not, they're pretty complicated, but they're not just complicated things. They're a lot more important than complicated things. Like a rock's a simple thing, a baby's a complicated thing. This is the way the guy thinks, and he's he's saying this is the way it is, because I say so. No questions. Baji is the study not of living things, plant and animal, protista, but 
the study of complicated things which give the appearance of having been designed for purpose. So he's just saying, look, don't think is don't think your baby or you're very important. You're not more important than just a well organized collection of carbon atoms. And I know it all looks like it fits together and is a purpose, but I say there isn't, so don't bring that up. We're not dealing with that. You've got to be an idiot to believe in that. He's a scoffer. You actually believe there's purpose and design teleology, uh, they're gonna make fun of you. So, you know, the reason, quote unquote, that skeptics mock and scorn and laugh about the supernatural end of human history is because in part they reject any kind of supernatural beginning of human history. And next week as we look about the statement, the uh, earth we live in came out of water and by water, there's only four options about ultimate origins, and the only one that makes sense is ours. And I'll show you that, but we'll we'll say that next week. Uh, They reject the supernatural beginning, so they obviously reject the supernatural ending. And they also put a time limit on God, because that's the big thing, Nancy, uh, where is the promise of his coming? It's like they're tapping their toe. I want to see him come down, you know, so I can prove the, uh, that I was wrong, I guess. Isn't that why they want to have him come back so quickly? But anyway, you, some of you guys have seen this before. But the number one argument by far by smart people to disprove the existence of God goes like this. If God were all good, he would want to defeat evil. If God were all powerful, he could defeat evil. But evil is all around us. Therefore, there can't be an all-good, all-powerful God. And boy, that sounds really powerful when you're sitting in a class, you know, freshman class, uh, philosophy class with some guy with a PhD uh, that sounds really smart and has written some journal articles, and boy, you're really impressed by that. Uh, they'll go on and they'll soften the blow by saying quite often, well, I mean, God could be all-good. Maybe your God is all-good, but he's obviously not all-powerful because he's not doing anything about evil. Or maybe he could be all-powerful, but he just doesn't care. So logically, that sounds like a pretty tight argument. But the argument has a hidden premise, which is a false premise, which not only invalidates their conclusion, Daniel, this actually argues for us. The way the argument should be stated to be valid is, since God is all good, he wants to defeat evil. Right, Blanche? Okay, you look like you're not sure. Since God's all-powerful, he can defeat evil. But evil's all around us. What's the conclusion, Murray? He's not finished yet with his purpose for permitting the status quo. The status quo is a Latin term that means the mess we's in. Okay? He's just not finished yet. Now, as biblical Christians would be say, is there any evidence in Scripture, written word, or by the words of the living word, Jesus, that God's not finished yet? When he's finished, everything's going to line up? I'd say go to the end of the book of Revelation. Go to Revelation 21. And you'll notice that part. And, and the cool thing is, Christians disagree on these details, but we all believe in the first advent. We're talking about regenerate believers. Uh, we all believe in the ascension. Uh, we believe in the little second advent. We may or may not believe the literal millennium. Some people don't believe in the literal millennium. But we all believe everything talked about in 21 and 22, a eternal state which is going to be like we're going to describe it here. Everybody believes in that. This is, you know, the main things are plain things in the Bible. They get repeated a lot so that all the countries, colors, cultures, denominations, and generations of Christians get the same basic big ideas from Scripture. Look at uh, Revelation 21. And you know from that chart that Revelation 21 22 is talking about the final end point when God's done with permitting 
uh, evil permitting angels and anthropoid with uh, ability to make moral choices. You get the best of all possible worlds. Evil's been permitted. Love has been permitted. Evil will be defeated, quarantined, and there'll be no more evil, no more cancer, no more child molesters, no more uh, anything is bad. So let's look at verses uh, 1 through 8. I saw a new heaven and a new earth, a whole new universe. In the beginning, God created heaven and the earth. I see a new heaven and earth. Uh, first heaven, first earth passed away. No longer any sea. Okay? So you're going to have to go to a whole different planet to go swimming, I guess, right? Now, you have, there'll be swimming pools, but no, no oceans. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, perfect, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is among men. This is why I don't believe in moral creatures anywhere else in the in the universe, because I don't think God has done this multiple times, and he's not going to have multiple universes. He's got one universe, and redeemed humanity by his grace will be there. Uh, it's amazing, but true. Uh, he'll dwell among them. They'll be his people. God himself will be among them. And he'll wipe away every tear from their eyes. There'll be no more reason for sorrow or pain. Uh, no longer any death, no longer any mourning. Isn't that going to be great? No more funerals or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. And he who sits on the throne says, this is really going to happen. I know it's unbelievable. I'm going to do this. I'm going to make this happen because I'm all good and I want to and all powerful and I can. And he said to John, write this stuff down, son. I think John's overwhelmed with experience. He's not writing stuff down. So that's why you're here. Write it down. Write it down, buddy. And then he said to me, it is done. Now remember, we've got that hidden time limit on God here, Sue. If God's all good, he would defeat evil. God's all powerful, he could. Hadn't happened. Therefore, the hidden time premise is, so it's never going to happen. And I would say, you don't have enough knowledge to say that. It just hasn't happened yet. God hasn't said, it is done yet. Okay? And this isn't tetelestai, it's a slightly different phrase, but it is done. My purpose for permitting uh, evil, not promoting it, but permitting it so that real love can happen betwixt angels and anthropoi, heavenly hosts and human beings. I've been a speech teacher too long, right, with all that alliteration. Um, I am the Alpha and Omega. I'm the beginner and the ender. The scoffers don't believe in the beginning. The beginner, they don't believe in the ender, obviously. The beginning and the end, I'll give to the one. Here's a salvation uh, invitation to the readers as he talks about the ultimate end point of history. I'll give to the one who thirsts, who recognizes their need and their inability from the spring of the water of life, but it's going to cost you everything you've got. He says, without cost. It sounds like this is radical free grace that saves. The fruit is not the cause, it's an effect, right? The one who overcomes... First John 5 says, the one who overcomes the world believes Jesus is the Christ because the world wants you to believe anything about Jesus, good, bad, or ugly, except that he is the exclusive issue and the exclusive issue of eternal life. The one who overcomes the world, and that's the number one agenda. Don't trust that. Don't really take him seriously. Uh, will inherit these things. I will be his God. He'll be my son. But to the cowardly, those who aren't willing to overcome the world and actually believe in the Christ, that is the unbelieving. And then he lists all these other a characteristic, the abominable, murderers, immoral persons, sorcerers, idolaters, all liars. That's kind of convicting, isn't it? If 100% of all liars go into the lake of fire, 
How many of you have never committed a lie? If, if, raise your hand, because if you lie about that, you'll lie about other things too. Probably your golf score. I've played with people who lie about that. You know, you'll see a guy, he'll hit a ball in the water, now he's hitting three, he'll hit a ball in the trees, you hear him hack at a ball at least three times, and if you swing and miss it, that counts. Then he'll chip it in the fairway, kick it onto the green, make four putts, you'll say, what, what do you make? Six? You're going, huh? It's at least a twelve. Jim. That happened in high school, high school golf tournaments. You're going, really? Uh, man, it's tough. Um, here's the thing. When you see these vice lists, he's saying, think of, Trey, think of the cowardly, that is the people not able, not willing to overcome the world and actually believe that Jesus is Christ, the cowardly unbelieving. He's talking about all unbelieving abominable people. All unbelieving murderers. We know David's going to be in the kingdom. We know Abraham's going to be in the kingdom. Did Abraham ever tell any lies? He lied about his marital status at least twice that we know of. And if he did it twice that we know of, he probably did it more than that. You know? But where does, uh, in the story Jesus tells about the rich man and Lazarus, Lazarus goes to the good place and who does he see there? He's Abraham. It's not in the lake of fire. He's not in the bad part of Sheol. But for the cowardly unbelieving, that is to all unbelievers, then he lists some of the worst examples. But don't read that as avoid those things and you'll earn salvation. That misses the whole point. Uh, they're going to get theirs. They're going to get what they deserve. Wow, that's great stuff. Now go to chapter 22, verse 3. Now you guys know based on our Revelation chart, all of 21 and 22 is talking about the eternal state. Although really... Once you get to verse six, you really get to a epilogue of the book overall. But that's 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 close enough for right now. But look at chapter twenty-two. You need to read twenty-one and twenty-two more often. I only had like five major bombs go off last week that we're going to be dealing with for a while. And sometimes you just got to look at the way stuff's going to work out because it's so disappointing and heartrending to see some of the stuff people do. Uh, there'll no longer be any curse. And the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, right in the center of the New Jerusalem. And if you're a believer, you're going to be there too. And his bondservants will serve them gladly. And we're not going to sit around on harps just wondering what we're going to do all day. We're going to be actively contributing to the glory of God, the worship of God, serving God. They'll see his face. We'll be face-to-face with him. The full vision of the incarnate reality of God. And his name will be on their foreheads. So we're all going to have tattoos. I'm not sure exactly what that means. I'm not sure that's a tattoo of a name, but I mean, I think we'll be identified with him uh, permanently. No longer any night. There'll be, so David, you don't have to worry about the lights going out, you know. You'll be able to take some time off. No no longer uh, of any need of the light of a lamp and the light of the sun because the Lord God will illumine them and they'll reign forever and ever. And before too long and in that continuum, It'll seem like a bad nightmare, all of the worst human atrocities that have ever happened and even the worst things in all of human history. As horrible as some of them are and have been and will be, and some of us may have to deal with them directly, uh, it's all going to work out in the end. So don't act like because Christ hasn't come back yet, he's not coming back. Delay is not denial. You know, I like to say this. I'm sure other people have said this. I haven't heard anybody say this myself, but I just think it's really cool to think that Abraham receives these really uh, detailed major promises about the first and second coming of Jesus, as it were, about 2000 B.C. And it took, quote-unquote, 2000, a long time for the first set of prophecies to be fulfilled, right? 
Was that because God was slow on the draw, forgetful, or don't? No, right on schedule. And so here we are, 2018, which is roughly 2,000 years after the first coming, waiting for the second coming. So uh, it's way too early to panic just based on that. And if you trust in the character of God, you're not going to panic about it anyway. So 2,000 years after the major Old Testament promises about the first coming of Christ, he arrives precisely on schedule. He wasn't late. He wasn't delayed. It's exactly the way it's supposed to work out. And roughly here we are 2,000 years after the major promises, and Christ will arrive for the second advent, rapture, trib, second advent, millennium, eternal state, precisely at the chosen time. He's going to come back suddenly to start that, but not necessarily soon. But he's not going to forget, okay? So, we looked at the arrogant question of the skeptics. Now, Steve, let's look at the erroneous assumption, middle part of verse 4. But look at this graphic up here. You know, we're done with that first part, right, Steve? So let's just make that go away. But I don't like that at the bottom, so let's move that up there. Okay, I'm happy to do that for you. No problem. Look at Second uh, Peter chapter 4, middle of verse 4. For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was in the beginning of the Big Bang, or whatever you're thinking caused this in the first place. And they don't believe in any divine involvement in that. These scoffers do not. The skeptics assume things in the future will proceed pretty much the way they do in the present. That's called uniformitarianism. And their battle cry is, the present is the key to the past. But how about the catastrophes that happen? Well, um, in general, don't worry about those. Okay, Scripture affirms human history is framed by direct supernatural intervention. That means a beginning and an ending. Right? Uh, one reason, historically, scientists did not want to go from the steady state theory, the universe is eternal, to the Big Bang paradigm is because they didn't want to be a beginner. Because you have a beginner, a banger, you're going to have to have an ender, right? Um, and so just because of the uh, uh, moral and theological implications of having a beginning of time, space, matter, and energy, you've got to have a transcendent agent to make that happen. Otherwise, you've got nothing from nothing. And, mer- you know, if you've seen Sound of Music, you know, nothing comes from nothing. Nothing ever could. But somewhere in my youth or childhood, I must have done something. Yeah. And there's a lot of good theology there. But because of the fact they're forced to deal with one universe which has been exquisitely tuned, it's called the anthropic principle for human life, 19 major constants can't be off by even eight decimal places or the whole thing won't work. And because you've got to assume that everything pops into existence out of nothing, now they're saying, well, there must be an infinite number of universes. I mean, they can't even ex- explain the b- beginning of the one we live in. But based on nothing, talking about nothing from nothing, there must be a whole bunch of universes. We just happen to get all those constants to line up. You know, I don't have that much faith to believe in stuff like that. You know, and they're making fun of us for having faith. So, uh, scripture affirms human history is framed, a beginning and an ending with purpose. You know, a beginner and an ender is personal. Uh, the past, God's work in creation is the key to the present, God's work in regeneration, coming to faith. And live in the faith and the future. God's work of consummation. Best of all possible universes. So, wow. Uh, I think that's a pretty cool way to think about history. And it has the advantage of being biblical and the advantage of being true. <laughs> so, they laughed our Lord Jesus to scorn. They're going to laugh 
at us too. So don't be surprised by that or paralyzed. And you got to treat, teach your middle school kids, your high school kids, and your college kids. It's not worth dumping the faith to try to be in the cool group. It's just not worth it. They will, the crowd will turn on you, uh, uh, when you get out of line anywhere. So why start compromising with the important stuff? Just don't do it. Uh, take this to heart. Don't be surprised by the fact that many, including a lot of cool people, smart people, rich people, people with a lot of media exposure, uh, influential people will mock Christ and Christianity and it's getting worse all the time, uh, in our culture. Uh, and they will especially turn their scorn toward yet unfulfilled Bible prophecies about the future. It's just like this treated, how can you believe those fairy tales, you know? Uh, and here is a problem. The only thing worse than the general tendency for the skeptics to make fun of us for believing in a future second heaven of Christ is the fact that so many, sometimes they're Christians and sometimes they're not, hopefully well-meaning, sometimes they're not, uh, people with some exposure keep setting dates for the end times. And Jesus says nobody knows the date of the second coming. In fact, he says in his incarnation, in his life, I don't even know. You know what? Christ gave up the independent use of his divine attributes, including the, the expression of his glory, and in that case, that one aspect of his omniscience, so he could experience the human condition. And he's saying, as I stand here, I don't even know what's going to happen. I think he knows now, but uh, this is not something that happened 100 years ago. This was just, uh, what, what's today? The 29th, is that right? The last, April 23rd was what, like a week ago, what? Was that Friday? Week ago, Thursday, whatever it was. It was Monday? That's right, okay. See, I'm not good with numbers. 316 I'm good with. But, uh, uh, yeah, last Monday, according to a Christian numerologist. Now, you know what? I mean, I've been at Dallas Seminary. I got a PhD from Trinity. I have no idea what a Christian numerologist is. I didn't know there was such a thing. You know what I mean? Like, you know, I don't know. But according to this one Christian numerologist who I'd never heard of, who was actually wrong about six months ago, but recalculate, they always recalculate, you know, and hey, you know, we all make mistakes. If you read the bulletin lately, if you don't like the bulletin, if there's a spelling error, it's my fault. If we got the time wrong, it's my fault. It's always my fault. Just tell me and I'll fix it, okay? Don't ask whose fault it is. It's my fault. I'm the one who does it, okay? No secrets. Doesn't bother me a bit. Uh, you know, I don't like to make mistakes, but I don't mind fixing it if it's not too late. Uh, but anyway, yeah, so this was on Fox News, and that's always a good source, but Bi- Biblical Prophecy Claims the Rapture is Coming 23rd, Numerologist Says. I hate that headline. These people are supposed to be halfway, you know, rational. Uh, in the news business, you know, uh, one of my uh, colleagues at the com- communication department says, there is no such thing as fake news. There's just news. If it's fake news, it's not news. Now, we're all going to decide, you know, where you draw that line, but... So Nancy, it sounds like they're saying biblical prophecy just flat says rapture's coming April 23rd. And see, the average low-information voter today, that's all they're going to see. The average guy that lives, uh, I would say lives across the street from you guys, but I can't because Homer lives across the street from you and Pam, and they're believers. But down the street, they're going to say, oh, those postal weights actually take this stuff seriously. But Bible prophecy claims the rapture's coming in 23rd, so it's wrong. Now, the Bible doesn't, does the Bible say the, the rapture's going to happen on April 3, 23rd? 2018, anywhere? What verse is that? Second Hezekiah 12, 1 or something? I don't know. But that was last week. <laughs> the big one that happened a few years ago was Harold Camping, and he said that May 21st, you'd think you'd get the, at least the, 
the same month or much less the day. But anyway, he calculated it all and it was going to be May 21st, 2001. And they had billboards all over the world and this and that. And you remember what happened when May 21st came and went? What did Harold Camping do, Ron? You remember? Recalculated it to October 21st and it didn't happen then either. Uh, and a lot of us were saying, I can't tell you the rapture wouldn't happen on May 21st, 2011. I can say it now because it can happen any time. But if it happens, it's only because God has a huge sense of humor there. I think he's going to purposely avoid days like that. And there's a long list of this, and I won't go into all that. But, yeah, the fact that so many Christians, one thing for people, maybe whatever, I'm not sure what the numerologist's motives are, maybe pure as the driven snow or as un pure as the driven slush. I don't know, but uh, I'm not going to judge him. But Christians who should know better take a lot of this stuff seriously and write their pastor's emails and say, you got to preach, you got to preach about this October thing or this April thing or this May thing. And, you know, we'd rather not because we know it's not right. Right. So don't be surprised. People will mock, but some Christians will set dates or be influenced by those who do. And that doesn't help us. Number two, what looks like delay to our eyes, and it does look like a delay. Turn to John 8. We're almost done here, but John 8 is really a, a killer statement. Uh, the Lord talks about Abraham here. John chapter 8. Uh, it does look like delay. I mean, it's 2,000 years. But again, if you put it in biblical perspective, you get all those detailed prophecies to Abraham 2,000 B.C., and it took 2,000 years in God's time frame, according to the blueprint, no problem. So it's not that, shouldn't be surprising at all, period over and out. But since most of us are biblical illiterates in, in the general culture, they don't know stuff like that. But you should, right? Anyway, Jesus is interacting with some of his theological opponents, and uh, he says, verse 56, your father Abraham in 2000 BC rejoiced to see my day based on the basic promises he was given, the prophecies he knew about so in the eyes of faith. And he saw it and was glad. For him, the first coming of Jesus was his hope, right? They're filled by faith, they're saved by faith in the promised Messiah. Uh, so the Jews, that's not talking about all Jews, anti-Semitic references, talking about the Jewish leaders who are opposing him said to him, you're not yet 50 years old. And he's probably only early 30s, but they're rounding it up to make sure they've got him. Uh, and you've seen Abraham? Is that what Jesus said? No. Yeah. He said, Abraham had seen through the eyes of faith my day. And Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am, ego me, which lines up with the most important holy name for God in the Old Testament, Yahweh. And he's using that intentionally to emphasize, not only was I before Abraham, I've always been there. I'm Abraham's creator. And you know that he's claiming to be God there because look what happens. Verse 57 Every time they pick up stones to stone Jesus, he's just claimed to be God again. And just, you know, he does these things. Uh, therefore, they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hit himself and went out of the temple. So, yeah, delay to our eyes is not denial. Uh, we should be delighted by the fact that we're for sure closer than any previous generation, right? And it could happen before this message is over, although it's not going to be very much longer. Uh, third and finally... Um, Regardless of not what, but when uh, the rapture happens, which initiates the end times, which leads directly to the second advent of Christ, regardless of when that event happens uh, in God's time, in real time, 
you know, our blessed one-to-one meeting with the Lord Jesus Christ. It's just one heartbeat away anyway. And I know I've said that many times in the pulpit, but I've always, you know, I always wondered, yeah, I know it's imminent, but I mean, every generation has been looking for the coming of Christ, you know, in the air, and God knew it was going to happen. And, and some skeptics will say, well, why, why would God teach an imminent, you know, coming of Christ if he knew it wasn't going to happen until 2018 or 19 or, or 3018 or what it's going to be? Because that's the way we should be thinking anyway. I mean, every every breath is a gift. When you go to ICU and see somebody struggling to breathe, you realize how fortunate you are to be able to breathe, to have a heart that you are pretty sure is going to have another beat, but you can't depend on that. People have spontaneous heart attacks all the time. It's usually after long, boring messages, which is why I always have short, interesting messages, just so you'll know. I could go with the long, boring ones, but I refuse to. Um, 2 Corinthians 5 says, absent from the body, face to face with the Lord. That's what death is. Your consciousness leaves your body, you're with the Lord. Uh, Romans 8.1 says what? There is therefore now no condemnation. Well, I thought all liars are going to like a fire. All unbelieving liars will. Uh, I've told a few whoppers, not lately, but I've told a few whoppers myself. But I'm saved, sealed, and forgiven. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, and then that's Romans 8, 1, and Romans 5, 1 says, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. That's just a fact, you know, it's on your best day, worst day. And then we'll close with this, John 3, or John 6, uh, 38, 39, 39 and 40, I should say. Uh, paraphrase, this is the will of my Father, everyone who beholds the Son with the eyes of faith, believes in Him, will have eternal life, and I myself will Raise that person up on the last day. So I'm not sure when the last days are going to start. I believe the initiation is imminent. It could happen at any moment. But I'm not going to presume it's going to happen, even in my lifetime. But I know uh, I'm a very healthy 65, but I probably won't be preaching when I'm 165. I'll probably be a professional wrestler then. So, I mean, I've got to start thinking about how to uh, the exit strategy, what the next phase is going to be. But... Uh, I wouldn't mind the rapture happening some Sunday morning. That'd be a, that'd be a, right after the message, right? That'd be awesome. But, uh, they laughed at Jesus. They're gonna laugh at you if you take this seriously. We're not dangerous. We are different. But, uh, uh, I think, uh, if you haven't been laughed at for the faith in a while, uh, even rhetorically, just from the uh, popular kids on TV, you're probably not uh, where you should be. I'll let you figure out on, on that, okay? Lord, we thank you for promises you've given in the past that have been fulfilled literally, like uh, the prophecies about the first coming of Jesus, and now here we are living between the first coming and the second coming, this very, very unique, privileged position to be in, the inter-advent period. We kind of take it for granted, but we shouldn't, and the Lord's Supper reminds us of this, but... We're looking forward to the initiation of the end times and the fact that Christ is at your right hand and that he, he could come for his church at any instant, even before we get in our cars today to drive home later. So let that be a, a comforting hope, a convicting hope, and let us realize that even if the end times don't kick in for another hundred years or a thousand years, we're all just a heartbeat away anyway, and we ought to live with that expectancy and that uh, urgency to be doing the right things the right way to your glory. Please encourage us to do that and, and help us have the courage when necessary to be laughed at, to be scorned, to be uh, 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 ridiculed, 
uh, for the reality of, of our Christian faith. And the, please reinforce us to be able to do that and then to be excited about the possibilities. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.